Well, church, it's so good to be back with you uh, this morning after having three weeks off. You know, it's felt like a while since I've been been back and, and gathering with you, and so I'm thankful to be back. and And I just want to say thank you for um, just allowing Kate and I the space to to adjust to our new family life over the last three weeks. And and I especially want to take a moment and just thank Nick uh, for taking time to to preach and taking time to lead our Sunday mornings and, and allowing me to to step away for three weeks and, and adjust to things with my family and all the while, you know, not having to worry about the church, knowing that it's in good hands and, and you're continuing to gather together. And so I'm just thankful that you've given us the space to do that. And thank you, Nick, for taking the responsibility of preaching over the last three weeks. Um, but I gotta say, it's good to be back. I am, I am so thankful to be back and preaching with you. Uh, and I'm excited to, to dig into God's word with you today and over the next several months. And uh, we are starting, we're gonna start a new series today that I'm really excited about. We're gonna be starting a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. We are gonna be, over the next several months, probably up until about September, we're gonna be going through the Sermon on the Mount together. Uh, and so I think it's gonna be a, an encouraging time. I think it's gonna be a challenging time. Uh, but it's going to be good. And so this week, what we're going to do this week and next week are going to be kind of an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount and an overview of the sermon. And I want to do that before we start to dig into its individual parts. I think it's important to look at the sermon as a whole before we start looking at the individual pieces in order to be able to understand it properly and what Jesus was actually teaching. And so today, as we dig into the Sermon on the Mount, we are going to introduce ourselves to this sermon by asking and answering four different questions this morning. The first question we're going to ask is, why are we studying the Sermon on the Mount? So why did I feel in this time led to study this sermon? The second thing we're going to look at is, is who is the Sermon on the Mount uh, addressed to? Who was Jesus teaching? Who is it intended for? So the third question we want to ask this morning and answer is, what is the Sermon on the Mount? That's an important question. How do we understand it? What is it really? And number four, how should we read it? And how should we study it? And how should we apply it to our lives? And that's going to be a question that we answer over this week and next week. But we're going to look at it a little bit this morning. So the first question that we want to answer this morning together is, why are we studying the Sermon on the Mount? Why now? Why have I felt led that this is the time that we dig into this incredibly famous sermon from Jesus? And the reason, there's a, there's a couple different reasons, but they tie together. The first is that this is the most uh, concise and it is the most full, it is the most practical teaching that comes directly from the mouth of Jesus about what it means to live as his people. And that is always an important teaching to remember and an important teaching to focus on is how does Jesus call us to live? What are we supposed to be? And I think in this time it is especially important for us to focus on that because we are, Lord willing, beginning to come out of lockdown. Uh, <clears throat> over the next little bit, it looks like, you know, we've got these phases that we're going to be moving into and it's going to be slow, but I am hopeful and it looks like for the first time in over a year that we are starting to come out of this pandemic and I'm hoping that this will be the last time that we are locked down completely in this pandemic. You know, for the last year and a bit as a church, we felt that uh, it was good and it was right and it was loving and it was honoring to God that, that not that we close our doors, but that we adjust 
our gatherings so that we meet together online as opposed to in person and follow the government regulations. And this doesn't mean that we agree with everything, but it means that we thought it was the most best way to honor God and, and love our neighbors by following the regulations that were handed down by our government. And so we have not gathered in person over the last year. The church has not been closed. It has just changed the way it looks. But like everyone else over the last year, uh, we've been in our homes, right? We've been stuck in our own little bubble with our families, away from one another, away from other people. And as a result of that, I think it would be naive for us to think that or, or not recognize that because we've been away from one another for a year, because we've been kind of in our own bubble for a year, there's this certain amount of apathy that has probably bled into our lives. There's this certain amount of spiritual and physical and emotional wariness that has bled into our lives over the last year. And it would be hard pressed for anyone not to come out of this time maybe a little bit more self-centered, a little bit more self-focused, uh, because it's just been us and our families for so long. And and I think it's time that, that we, as we start to transition back to some sort of normalcy, we need to break these sorts of things off of our lives. And I think it's good to be reminded, as the people of God, what are we called to be? What kind of lives are we actually called to live for Jesus Christ? And And hopefully in doing that, this spiritual apathy that maybe some are struggling with will be shaken off. And I figure what better way to do that than with the Sermon on the Mount, one of the clearest and most practical sections of Scripture for how we are called to live. You know, the thing that I love about the Sermon on the Mount is it, it emphasizes the seriousness of Jesus' Jesus's teachings. It emphasizes the, the seriousness of the life that you and I, as followers of Christ, have been called to. And it reminds us very clearly as we read through it that we are not called to some sort of cushy, you know, uh, at home, this is my bubble kind of life under normal circumstances, but a life that demands much of us. In fact, a life that demands more than you and I are capable of giving in and of ourselves. And I want us to be reminded of that as we return to normalcy. So that is why we're going to look, we're going to take time and look at the Sermon on the Mount over the next uh, few months and, and, and allow it to expose our hearts, allow it to expose the things in our lives that Jesus needs to uh, address. And, and that is my hope as we do this over the next while. Uh, and so having answered that, let's, let's look at the second question. Who is the Sermon on the Mount for? So when Jesus preached this sermon, uh, who was he preaching it to? Who was he preaching it for? And this is a very important question to understand who Jesus' audience was for this teaching because there have been a lot of different and wrong views about who the Sermon on the Mount was addressed to in the history of Jesus' church. And who you believe this sermon is meant for will uh, impact how you respond to it and how you expect others to respond to it. And so what I want to do is I want to look at First, two wrong views of what it is, and then we'll look at what the Sermon on the Mount, or who the Sermon on the Mount is actually for. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a, a great pastor and a great teacher. He has an excellent book on the Sermon on the Mount that's entitled Studies on the Sermon on the Mount, and I will likely draw from his depth of knowledge throughout this series, but in this 
book that he wrote, he addresses two incorrect views uh, that people hold about this sermon. And the first view that he addresses is one that he coined the social gospel view. Now, this was a view that was very popular in the 1900s. This was a view that he, uh, in his time of being a pastor, had to combat uh, in Christian circles. And it was this, this view that uh, the Sermon on the Mount was meant for everyone. That it was this, this great ethical prescription of, of how you should live. And that if, if every man and every woman were to live according to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, then, then the world would change. The world would be a better place. So it's this social gospel view where it kind of removes the need for the Spirit. It removes the need for this new birth and this transformation that happens through Jesus Christ. And just says, hey, live according to what Jesus teaches here and, and the world will be a good place. All right, so th this is one view uh, that is incorrect uh, of the Sermon on the Mount and who it's for. Okay, the second view that, that's been very popular over the history of Jesus' church is, is that the Sermon on the Mount is just a, a, simply a further explanation of the Mosaic Law that we see in the Old Testament. That, you know, the people in Jesus' time had gotten the law wrong, they were misled, they were wrong, and so Jesus came and he was correcting the view of the law. He was trying to return them to uh, the spirit of the law. And, and while that is partially correct, that view is not entirely correct. So both of these views are, 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 are wrong. One view, the first view, fundamentally misreads and misunderstands the very heart of Jesus' message and the message of all of Scripture. And the second view just doesn't go far enough. You know, though there, there certainly is some truth that what Jesus teaches, it, it uh, fixes misunderstandings of the law and it, it adjusts people's view of the law, but that is not all that Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And so both of these views are deficient about what the Sermon on the Mount actually is. And so what is the right view? What is the Sermon on the Mount? Or who was the Sermon on the Mount for? And it is not a teaching that is for every man. It is not a teaching that is for every woman, as the social gospel would say. It is not just a further explanation of the law. It is something that goes so far beyond that. Um, and I'll explain it a little bit more when I answer the question, what is the Sermon on the Mount? But at the heart of it, it is an authoritative teaching for individuals who are followers of Jesus Christ. It is meant for and meant for alone Jesus' disciples, those who are in Christ. That is who Jesus was preaching this sermon for. That is who today this sermon is meant for. And I'll give you a couple of indications of why this is clearly the case. We see that <clears throat> it was Jesus' intent to uh, address the sermon to his disciples in Matthew 4 in the first section of Matthew 5 it tells us that Jesus was going around and and crowds were following him but just because crowds were following him doesn't mean that he was addressing the crowds because right before he begins to teach in the opening of Matthew 5 it says in Matthew 5 verse 1 to 2 it says seeing the crowds he went up on the mountain and when he sat down his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. Okay, so 
it says right there in Matthew 1 2, it says, Jesus sees the crowds. And when he sees the crowds, he goes up on the mountain and his disciples came to him and he taught them. And so he was teaching his disciples. And this fact is, is further solidified in, in how Jesus started teaching his disciples. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with what we know as the Beatitudes. And we'll dig into the different Beatitudes in a couple weeks. But Beatitude literally means blessing in Latin. So he begins by teaching blessed are, right? And he lists different ways that people are blessed. And the word blessed there is this Greek word makarios. And that, that Greek word makarios, it has an Old Testament equivalent um, that, it, that was often used to declare blessing on someone or something. For example, that word makarios, or the Old Testament equivalent to it, was used to describe when God declared the seventh day holy, when God declared the, the Sabbath as holy and blessed. And we know from the biblical understanding of blessing that those who are blessed by God are those who are in right relationship with God. And we are only in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so this solidifies that Jesus was teaching his followers. He was teaching his disciples. He was teaching those who belong to him, which have significant implications as we dig into the different sections of this sermon. So that is who the Sermon on the Mount is for. It is for us. It is for those who are followers of Jesus. Which then leads us to the third question, what is the Sermon on the Mount? And to understand what it is, we need to look at the context of the Gospel of Matthew. We should not, uh, as with anything else in Scripture, separate the Sermon on the Mount from the rest of Matthew's Gospel. He includes it for a reason in his Gospel, whereas Mark does not include it, and John does not include it in his gospel. And so why does Matthew take time to include the Sermon on the Mount, whereas the other gospels don't include it? And it's because all four gospels have a different focus. All four gospels have a different emphasis regarding the person and the work of Jesus Christ. They are all trying to accomplish something different. For example, the Gospel of John that we looked at as a church, it was focused on uh, preaching and teaching the deity of Jesus Christ. John was emphasizing that Jesus was God, right? And we see this throughout his gospel by the emphasis that he puts on his I am statements. Mark, in his gospel, he was focused on pre in teaching Jesus as a servant, right? And when you read Mark, you see that it contains really quick accounts of Jesus's actions and teachings, and it doesn't go into much dialogue, and it moves from one scene to the next very quickly. And it's because Mark was trying to show Jesus came here to serve. Luke, in his gospel, he was focused on teaching as Jesus as the Son of Man. He was focusing on Jesus' humanity. He was focusing on uh, the historical emphasis of who Jesus is for uh, Gentile readers. Okay, so these were the different focuses of the different Gospels. And so for Matthew, he had his own focus. He was writing to a Hebrew audience, 
And he wanted to show that Jesus was the one that the Jews were waiting for, that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who had been promised. But even more specifically than that, than just showing that Jesus was the Messiah, Matthew wanted to show that as the Messiah, Jesus was the promised king. And that is very important. Matthew wanted to show Jesus was king. From the very opening of his gospel, Matthew writes to make this very clear for his readers, that Jesus is king, that he is the son of David, that he is part of the lineage of David, and he is the one whom will ascend to the throne. And he begins in Matthew 1 with the genealogy of Jesus, showing that he comes from that line of David. And then he quotes Old Testament prophecies throughout his gospel that reveal Jesus' kingship. And so in the first several chapters of his gospel, this is the very clear focus of Matthew, that Jesus is king. And he begins with this kingly genealogy showing that he's in the line of David. Then in Matthew 2, verse 2, the wise men come to Herod asking uh, to see the newborn king. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? In response to their inquiry, Herod and his scribes search the scriptures, Matthew tells us, and the scriptures record a birth in the Old Testament prophecy in the book of Micah, Micah 5, verse 2, and that prophecy says, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come for me one who is to be ruler of Israel. Again, pointing to Jesus as king. Then in Matthew 3, John the Baptist, he prepares the way for this king, preaching about this king's power and the power of his kingdom. And then Jesus comes and he is baptized. And then in Matthew 4, he resists the temptation of the devil, showing the righteousness of this king. And then immediately after his temptation, Jesus begins his public ministry in Matthew 4. And he begins by preaching of a kingdom that is at hand. And he alludes to this repentance that is required before you can enter this kingdom. And then he demonstrates his kingly authority simply by calling men follow me and they drop everything and they follow him because he has such authority and then he shows what kind of kingdom he was bringing in what kind of power he had by going into synagogues and proclaiming the good news of this kingdom and healing every affliction and so Matthew is recording all of these things and his message is clear there is a kingdom and Jesus is the king And just as Matthew begins his gospel with a focus on Jesus' kingship, it continues throughout his gospel and it ends the same way that it begins in Matthew 28 as the king himself declares all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And in the middle of this gospel, declaring Jesus' kingship, we find the Sermon on the Mount. And the context tells us what it is. The Sermon on the Mount is instructions from a king to his people, his subjects, for how they are to live in his kingdom. Sinclair Ferguson calls it Christianity Living 101. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it is the perfect picture of the life of the kingdom of God. This is a king declaring for his subjects what life would be like in his 
kingdom. That is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. For the Jews who were expecting this military Messiah who would free them from political oppression, Matthew puts the true teaching of the kingdom in the forefront of his gospel for the Jews to show them what this kingdom would actually be. Not an outward kingdom, but an inward kingdom that governs and controls your heart and your mind and therefore your actions. The kingdom was mind-boggling to Jews. They, they couldn't understand it. They were expecting this, this military Messiah, one that, you know, this kingdom that would be gained through power, through military power, and rather Jesus brings a kingdom that would be gained through being poor in spirit. It was a complete mind shift for the Jews. Just as this kingdom confronted the Jews, it, it confronts us as well because we have similar ways of thinking as the Jews did in our culture, right? Power is how you gain things. This, this sermon and this kingdom that Jesus is ushering in is so countercultural to us as well as the Jews. And it is a kingdom that requires nothing less than a transformed heart and a transformed mind to be able to grasp it and to be able to live in it. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It is a king telling his subjects, this is what living in my kingdom is like. And so then, how should we read it? What does it mean for us? How do we study it? I want to begin unpacking this question by, by talking about how we should not read it. We must not read it with a mindset similar to that of the social gospel that we looked at earlier. There is this pull in fallen human hearts that we want to read the Sermon on the Mount from a mindset that says, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do that. I'm going to bear down. I'm going to try harder. I can accomplish this. But this kind of mindset, this kind of naturalistic mindset that reads the Sermon on the Mount and goes, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do better, it comes from a deficiency in our understanding of the gospel. You know, if you're like me, I will admit that I have to fight unbelief sometimes that says uh, our justification through Christ's work, he did 99% of the work, but I still have to do 1%. Right? There's this unbelief that can get traction in my heart every once in a while that yeah Jesus justified me but there's that one percent where I have to live right and do right and act right and get the Sermon on the Mount right so that I am justified before God but but this is a false gospel this is unbelief when we think this because either you are 100% justified by Christ in Christ alone or you are not justified at all and so for us to read the Sermon on the Mount from the kind of mindset that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull up my socks, I'm going to try harder, is this naturalistic perspective, and it misses the point of the sermon completely. You could not earn your way into this kingdom that the Sermon on the Mount is prescribing. So if you could not earn your way into this kingdom, then how do you suppose 
through your own strength, you'll be able to live according to this kingdom. And so if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you think, I can do that. I can achieve that. If I just try harder, then you're reading it completely wrong. And you have some incorrect views about your own ability. And you have reduced the Sermon on the Mount to nothing more than an ethical blueprint that Jesus was giving us. You know, I really appreciate what, what Timothy Keller says about the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, he says, You do not understand the Sermon on the Mount unless you understand the terror of it. You do not understand the Sermon on the Mount unless you understand the terror of it. There's a woman named Virginia Owens. She was a, a Christian thinker and she's a, a Christian writer and she's a professor. And while teaching literature at a university, she gave her students the Sermon on the Mount to read and then to do an essay on. And the students that received this assignment from her, the, the vast majority of them in her class, they had never read the Sermon on the Mount before, and, and a large number of them had never even heard of it. They didn't know what it was. And guess what? When they, when they were given this assignment and they read the Sermon on the Mount, do you know what their reaction was to it? They absolutely hated it. They hated it. The general consensus across the classroom was just hatred towards this sermon. One response from a student, he wrote this in his essay. He said, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is like, or to look at a woman like that is adultery. To be angry and insulted is murder. These are the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statements I have ever heard. This was the response from the class. They read it and they go, this is stupid. This is unhuman. This is impossible. And Virginia Owens came to this conclusion. She said, biblical literacy has come to the point in our culture where people are able to respond to Jesus Christ without filtering him through 2,000 years of cultural haze. What is she saying there? She's making a very astute observation. She's saying we've finally reached that point where Christian influence is, is not strong enough that people have not heard this gospel, that people have not heard this sermon before. And when you remove that cultural Christian influence, people see the Sermon on the Mount clearly for what it is, and they hate it because they recognize this is impossible. Nobody can live this way. And as Timothy Keller says, he says, if you read it right, you will realize that you need to be saved from the Sermon on the Mount because we are utterly helpless to live it out. In our Christian haze, sometimes we can read the Sermon on the Mount and we can think, I can do that. I can do that. I can try harder. I can do better. And the point of the Sermon on the Mount, which these students who have no uh, cultural Christianity in them at all, 
is that you can't. It's impossible. Nobody can live this out. The calling is way too high. No one is this perfect, right? If you read it right, you will recognize, I need to be saved from this. It's impossible. I can't do it. So then why do we study it? Why did, we, why did Jesus include it? How should we read it? What do we do with it? And I want to give you four insights into that. The first is this. To study the Sermon on the Mount properly, to read it, to, to live it out, it requires a supernatural starting point. It is not something you can read and do. It requires a supernatural starting point. The reality is that Jesus Christ died so that you and I would be enabled to live out the Sermon on the Mount. We can't do it on our own. Through Christ and Christ alone, these things that are prescribed in here are possible. And so when we read it, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, the proper response is to read it and, and throw ourselves on Jesus Christ, throw ourselves at his feet, throw our self-righteousness, throw our self-dependence out the window, throw our I can do this and I got this and I'll try harder, throw it at the feet of Jesus Christ and realize you can't. You can't do it on your own. We need to read the Sermon on the Mount and properly understand that it, it brings us to the feet of Jesus. We need Him to live it out. Which brings me to our second point about why we study it, because it shows our need. The Sermon on the Mount, it exposes us it exposes our hearts. It exposes our absolute bankruptcy apart from Christ, apart from His Spirit, apart from His power working within us. If we read it right, it makes us sit there and go, I can't do this. It makes us recognize that we need Him all the more. The third reason why we should read it and study it is because it brings blessings to our lives. Jesus declared that in the very beginning of his sermon. Blessed are these people. And so to, to read it and to, to live it out brings blessings to the lives of followers of Jesus. And then the last reason why we should study it and live it out is because it displays this king. It displays our king, it displays King Jesus, and it displays this kingdom that we are a part of, this radiant kingdom. It shows it to others, right? Right in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are salt, you are light. And when we read and we study and we live according to the Sermon on the Mount by the power of Jesus Christ, then we are salty, then we are full of light, we are bright, and others will be able to taste and they will see, they will come, and they will come to know the goodness of our King and the goodness of His kingdom. This is why we read and study and live out the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we begin 
to dig into this over the next while, I want to give you three practical takeaways for this week that I want you to do. Number one is, I want you to reflect on your approach to reading the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to be honest before God, and I want you to repent of self-righteousness and self-dependence. I want you to repent of the thoughts that I, I can do this, I can try harder. If that's how you read the Sermon on the Mount, come before Jesus and repent and recognize, no, you can't, not without Him, not without His power. And then I want you to read it this week. It's only three chapters. Read it and allow yourself to see how impossible it is and therefore how great Jesus is and how great His work is that he is doing within us. And then the last thing I want you to do is earnestly, through prayer, prepare your heart to live as a citizen of this kingdom. Prepare your heart to live as a citizen of this kingdom under your king for the sake of a fallen and a broken world that has been locked down, that is coming out of lockdown for the sake of the needs that are present all around us, that we may be that salt and we may be that light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, we thank you that it absolutely exposes our hearts, that it exposes our self-dependency, our self-righteousness. Lord, I pray in each of our hearts that you would remove incorrect views of this sermon, misunderstandings of what it is. Father, help us to see that it, it is impossible, that it is only through Christ, that it is only through his enablement that we are able to, to live it out at all. Father, prepare our hearts and change our hearts as citizens of this kingdom that we may be that salt and that light that others may see this gracious king that we know this incredible kingdom that we are a part of and may want it and father may you prepare us to live as citizens of this kingdom for the lost and for the broken Oh Lord, I know there is much to be done in each of our hearts. I know there is much to be done in my heart. But Father, I also know that you who began a good work will bring it to completion. And so we thank you for your continued grace. We thank you for your continued power that sustains us through all. And we give you praise in Jesus' name.